Good morning, everyone. I bring you greetings from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Uh, Wheatlands Presbyterian Church is a, a home church where my family and I have been since 99. Uh, PCA Church up there. And uh, as Ben said, I work with an organization called The Row House, which I founded. And it's kind of an events, an events-driven outreach, I guess, in our city. And uh, we host all kinds of speakers on all kinds of topics. And what's unique about it is it's a public forum. It's, uh, it's meant to be sort of a common grace, uh, good work that I offer to our community. And it's based on Christian principles and by bringing Christian speakers, but it's really meant to be just really hospitable to anybody who wants to come and ask questions and, and uh, stir things up and talk with us. And, and actually, listen, we can listen and learn from other people too. So people bring their friends and new people come all the time and it's a lot of fun. Um, also, my, um, just a little bit about me, I also bring you greetings from my wife, Becky. Uh, it's been with me since 1985 as a spouse. Um, and we have five children and four live in Philadelphia and one lives in, uh, where's the other one? Well, Denver, Colorado, yes. So I'm spread out a little bit. That's a bit about me. All right, before I read the passage, before we drop in uh, to this passage, a little bit of uh, context. We're going to be in Acts chapter 14. Um, but this is the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. And they're on their first preaching tour. And they come to this place called Iconium um, in what is now south-central Turkey. And a lot of people are converted through their ministry of teaching, both Jews and Gentiles that come to believe in uh, the living Jesus. But there's some, there's a, from both of those lots, there's a group uh, that stirs up trouble, tries to get Paul stoned, so they flee. And that's what, how they end up in Lystra. Um, they fled these other towns, and that's where we find them. And so I'm going to pick up in Acts chapter 14, verse 8. <clears throat> now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. <clears throat> and he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men, or of like na nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains 
and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. Can you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we want to uh, commit ourselves to you, our, both our listening and our speaking. Uh, with your Holy Spirit's help, may you speak and may you connect to us and may we be uh, drawn closer to Jesus and may you change us and transform us by your word. In your name, amen. There's a little bit of context on the other side too. You, know, you read a story like this and you think, well, that was odd. He said some really odd things and you wonder, so, you know, there was more to the sermon than that, I'm sure, but was it effective? And you know that later, as a result of this, uh, the people in Lister, he did get sort of moved out of town, and he did get stoned. Paul did get stoned. <clears throat> um, but this stuff, it makes you wonder, was this an effective message? Could he have done it better? And uh, the, the fact that he got stoned means it was very effective, right? They, they, they stoned him because he, we also know there were disciples in that town who then took care of him and brought him back into town. So disciples were made. And Paul got stoned. Some of you may have heard of E. Nesbitt. So e. Nesbitt was an author uh, in the late uh, 19th century who had an impact on C.S. Lewis. And uh, you know, her railway children books are vivid and insightful, entertaining. She has a short story called Where You Want to Go To. And in this story, where you want to go to, there's two kids, Thomasina and Salim. Salim's a boy. And they had these really stern parents. And they had this cool uncle named Reggie. There's a stifling hot day in London. They're bored, they don't know what to do. They're getting on each other's case. And then Thomasina says to Salim, that their mother had blamed it on the heat. The reason they were so crabby. And this is what Salim says. Then it's not our fault, the boy said. People say be good and you'll be happy. Uncle Reggie says, be happy and perhaps you'll be good. I could be good if I was happy. Nesbitt's story brings up a really relevant point for those of us who have been around the church. Is this. Does God want you to be happy? Or does he want you to be good? Does he want you to do the right thing? He wants to get some good out of you. What's his priority? Will happiness, as Salim said, make you say, I could be good. I think perhaps I could be good if I were only happy. How does God get our attention? To get us to where he wants us to go, to be good. What I mean by good is follow Jesus, do the right thing, be moral. How does he get your attention to get, to, to get you to that? Does he have to be cruel to be kind? As the 80s psalm says, is that his method? Sometimes I think We've convinced ourselves that's what he has to do. That's the only route he has. 
He withholds his gifts from us um, when we're not so good. And if he does that, well, then people will be sorry and repent and come back and, and love him back and feel his love. He must really be out to get those who don't love him, you know what I mean? But Paul's message and his method in Lystra challenges these notions. I mean, his main, his main message, obviously, this, this audience of pagans, and they were real pagans. I mean, they, we use the word pagans loosely, but these folks, they're into the Greek pantheon. It's pretty clear, right? And uh, he says to them, you leave these vain things. You, you all are trying to worship us? No, no, no. Leave these vain things and look to the living God, which is Yahweh, God of the Jews, the God of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sure he said many other things. So that's, that's his message to these folks. We're also noticing his, meth, his method, but when you talk about this living God, what is Paul trying to convey to these folks about who this living God is? And the first thing is, there's two things I want to highlight, is uh, verses 8 through 15. <clears throat> God is holy. This living God is holy. And you might know that holy doesn't necessarily mean morally pure. That's part of it. But holy essentially means he's set apart. He's way beyond us. God's holiness is he is separate. He created the world, but he's not the world. He has unhindered power to do what he wants to do. He's kind of in his own world in that way. And that's proven by the healing of this young man. God comes along and he's affirming Paul as a servant, but as a true apostle of the living Jesus. And this guy is healed. He's physically healed. An act of restoration and compassion. And just by the way, I mean, these kinds of miracles may not be normative in our church practice these days. It's not to say they don't happen, of course. Um, but it does mean that our works as a church, as Christians, of restoration and of healing and good works do go before us. They set the stage and are a sign that we care for people. Real human beings. And they go hand in hand with proclaiming the good news. But even so, the crowd misreads this miracle. They're supposed to read, God is other and he's holy, and he decides to use his holiness to take compassion upon this guy and heal him. Let us bow down and praise and worship this guy. Well, they misread it, right? They're so hung up on their on their idols, and that, you know. They have that in their mind. Zeus and Hermes have shown up in human form. This must be them. It's kind of funny because, you know, Paul and Barnabas don't really know the Lycomian language, and it kind of, they're a little bit slow on the uptake. When they realize what's happening, they see the oxen and the gargling coming in for, for the sacrifice. That's really, whoa, dudes, stop. You know, our God did this. We didn't, this isn't about us. It's about, we're just people like you. Turn from these vain things and look to the living God. The things that they put up as worship were vain things that are dust. So he's holy. He's other. You know, this, this God that Paul's preaching is not represented by idols. He's represented by everyday people. 
Mr. and Mrs. Israel, very faulty people, you know, Paul and Barnabas. And the Jews were not a very faithful mirror to God's holiness throughout history, but there was a witness there through them. So people knew there was this other God, you know, <clears throat> throughout the nations. God's the creator of all. He's not um, someone that Paul and Barnabas conjured up in their minds, or anybody could conjure up in their minds. Too holy, too great, too amazing for that. And he's a God, again, who in his holiness can heal a person miraculously by the power of his word, even working through human agents. That's holiness. Turn from Zeus and Hermes and all that vain stuff. Believe in this God. And that's, you know, as I preach this, I say that's pretty standard stuff for people in 2021, Westerners, Christianized people. But yeah, that's crazy. Who would, who would bring out a, an ox up here in Fukui Verena and sacrifice an ox on the town square and be accused of paganism? It's kind of beyond that. We kind of get that. But this next attribute of God is a bit more challenging, I think, to our sensibilities. It gets back to what I introduced in the beginning. Not only is God holy, but he's merciful. 16 through 18. He's super generous to every one of us. All of us. Believers, non-believers, people of the world, people who love him back, people who don't, people who dismiss him. He is merciful. You know, we have, we have to expect Paul to just come out of the gate and slam these guys. Because they're pagans. They're all under God's judgment, and that's true, because God's holy. They're accountable to him. And yeah, the judgment is just hanging right there. God is holy. You can't live an unfaithful, ungrateful life and not fear you might fall into the hands of this God. He's holy. But that's not what Paul leads with. Maybe he leads it with a miracle, but the preaching is God is merciful. That's where this happiness stuff comes in. And the uh, purposeful, playful title, if you're happy and you know it. Paul says some pretty challenging things, or at least strange things from our ears. He says that God's very patient with every nation. He allowed all the nations to do their thing, to develop, to build cultures, to grow things. And through that whole time, he said, Paul says there was a, he didn't leave them without a witness. Now we could say some of that witness were the Jews and their very existence, yeah. <clears throat> Paul doesn't go there. His emphasis, though, is on the direct blessings of God in creation. The simple things that God alone can give to his human creatures, he gave them to all people. No matter their attitude toward him. Rains. Seasons. Productivity. Harvest. And maybe this one's a hang-up. Happiness. Gave them happiness. Unless you think, oh well, Paul must be talking about some sort of giddy, on-the-surface happiness. I don't think so. Happiness is happiness. I mean, it's the same word used for the 
the disciples, when they gather to pray and they're filled with the Spirit, and they're eating meals and praying together with a glad heart, it's the same word. <clears throat> Human joy and happiness. So the bottom line for these folks in Lystra, and for us, the message today, to turn from these vain things, where they are, and where gods are, and come to this living God. He is holy, and he is able, and he is merciful. And when you combine those two things together, the holiness and the mercy, I think one of the best words we have is kindness. Because kindness implies you have the power to do otherwise, or to do more than just be kind, but you choose to be kind. You're able to be kind. That's God. Well, I'm shocked by it, that God would be this kind. This is a word that you won't hear often in the pulpit, but God is he's promiscuous with his gifts, his generosity, his liberality, and his kindness over all creation. That's what Paul's saying. The day before I flew down here, I took a 29-mile bike ride on my road bike, because I knew I'd be sitting a lot on a plane and just being there. I did, I did borrow Ben's bike, which was nice, but I wanted to get some exercise. <clears throat> so got on my bike in this beautiful, perfect Pennsylvania fall day, kind of like we're enjoying here, just blue sky, still air, um, about 70 degrees, 68 degrees, just gorgeous. And uh, a little bit of, maybe a little bit of wind. I rode my bike from my small city of Lancaster um, west to a little town called Columbia. I love going to Columbia because small town of 6,000 people on the Susquehanna River. Now I grew up on the Susquehanna, two hours north of there. I love the river. And so I would oftentimes just go out there to see the water. And on this occasion, I'm riding through Lancaster County farmland. I come in on the north side of Columbia and I'm riding on this bluff on a small road, two-lane road, and this bluff overlooks the river. But before it descends, at about probably 40 miles per hour on my bike, um, with rocks screwing across the, the road, I'd be careful, but I pull over and I go to this park, and the park is on the edge of this overlook called Chickie's Rock. And I'm just looking at the river, I'm just taking it in. That's all I needed. It was, it was just good enough. I look to my right up north, and the river is more natural. It's not as dammed up there. It's the rocks. There's rocks through the river. It bends. There's hawks flying. To the left is Columbia. And I'm just, I would have stayed longer just to drink it all in and to praise God that this brings me joy, brings me happiness just to see this, to be a part of this, to know that this God who made this cares for me. And it's a meditative moment for me. I would have stayed longer, but there was a young lady on a bench. There were the only two people up there. And she was sitting over there on a bench. And she too was just gazing out over this chasm. Um, I didn't really want to interrupt her reverie, to be honest. Now, I don't know this person at all. I have no idea what her attitude is toward God. Um, I'm guessing maybe she was getting away from something. It's the middle of the day. She had sweatpants on as if maybe she was wearing pajamas. 
Just a weird time for a 20-something to be up on a, on a uh, overlook. I'll never know what's going through her head. Here's what I do know. And I do. I try to imagine, what could this person's story be? You know, what are they thinking? I don't know. I know this. Based on passages like this and much of the Bible, the living God, the Creator, was in some way reaching out to her, speaking through nature, through creation, through that beautiful view, in a way calling to her. And in her repose, and in that healing moment of nature and quiet, perhaps, maybe, happiness was something she was gaining. I don't know. But if she does, it's a gift from God. For what purpose? Why would God do all these beautiful things so that people just would be happy and go on their, their way and like just ignore him? And no, no. Happiness and kindness leads to repentance. That's the goal. That this girl will be drawn to a creator who gives those kinds of good gifts. I pray for her. That that would be true. I don't know. A part of her, that experience would be a portal for her of healing in the name of Jesus. And I thought about myself. <clears throat> can I actually believe, and can you actually believe that the living God who is holy and merciful has given me kindness, has been kind to me, has given me happiness through these things so that I might know him better. That's Paul's audience. And he pleads with them. They would come to this God. And if they find themselves happy in that, and they know it, they'll turn to their ingratitude and follow Jesus and live. That's a lot of our stories here. I find it interesting, though, and sad that so-called Christians can be so grumpy. Can I get an amen? <laughs> and unhappy and miserable and stingy and stinky. Why? If you're happy and you know it, show it. It comes out, it doesn't come out in a smarmy smile or happy-go-lucky. I don't mean to sprinkle dust everywhere this morning. That's not my way. I'm not, not show, how I show happiness often. But in, in gratitude and in our own holiness and in mercy and in kindness to others, to everyone, to anyone. If you think this sounds overly, like, <clears throat> drawn or something, or off-base in any way, let me remind you that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount this. You've heard it was said. You know, love your neighbor. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. Here's the kicker. For he, God, makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do that? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? 
Don't even the Gentiles do that, the pagans, they do that. And he says, Jesus says, you therefore, listen, disciples of Jesus, you therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And when I read perfect, when Jesus is perfect, you may immediately go to, oh, I gotta be gooder, I gotta be better, I gotta be perfect. No! How are we to be perfect? In imitating the Father. In what way? Mercy. Kindness. Promiscuous goodness to others. We're believers. We can imitate God and have that kind of effect on our neighbors. And kindness. Is God's that way? This is exactly who God is. <clears throat> the actor um, Jason Sudeikis plays a character called Ted Lasso. Raise your hand if you've heard of this show. <clears throat> Ted Lasso. And uh, he was recently hosting Saturday Night Live. And um, I've, I've watched this show. And um, he said it's really interesting that that show has been such a hit, especially in America, because it's about soccer and kindness. No, that's funny, but it's also tragic. And that is what the show's about, essentially. I was um, <clears throat> asked to speak in Florida um, when I was down there a few years ago from my friend Chris, and I went to spoke to a youth group. It's always fun to speak to a youth group. And um, I told them a story, which I talk about in my book. I, used it with similar context, but anyway, the story is this. I had a dad who was risky enough to let his son, me, drive a muscle car. And um, I'd be remiss if I didn't give you the details. It was a 67 Oldsmobile Cutlass um, CS uh, convertible. It was a uh, 350, um, it was a 400 cubic inch, 350 horsepower engine, four speed. It was a pretty sweet machine. And my dad said, hey, you can use it. It was like a show car kind of thing. We all had, we all had cars everywhere, but that car was particularly fast. And he said, yeah, you can take it down, take it for a drive. Just don't race it. And I'm like, I'm 17, 16, right? So me and my buddies, we went down to our neighboring town where all the cool people were, called Lewisburg. <clears throat> we're driving down Route 15 in the Cutlass. And uh, we pull up to a red light. And Central PA, so there's people in trucks and just country people. And this particularly countryish group of guys pull up in a truck beside us. And I mean a junkie truck. And they're revving their engines, revving their engines. And hooting and hollering. And I'm just looking at him. What does this mean? I know what this means. <laughs> and when the, when the light turned green, man, I just floored that thing in first gear. And the car, like, was like a, it was like a powerboat. It, like, came out of the water. Like, and my, my friends were throwing us the seat. And I was about to slam it in second gear. And my foot just came off the accelerator. It just, the nose came down. They went screeching by us, laughing and yelling. And I brought the car to 
you know, an easy gallop and drove it home. And what I say to the kids at the youth group is, why do you, why do you think I came off the gas? And they raise their hands. You can think of all the reasons. Well, oh, <laughs> the first one is, uh, you didn't want your dad to beat you. You found out you were racing. Yeah. And that was, then a bunch of hands went down because that was most people. Oh, what else? Well, you don't want to get arrested. If you're racing, you get in trouble and get arrested. Okay. Yeah. Who else? You don't even want to wreck the car and kill yourselves. But thank you. And I say, you guys still haven't, you still haven't answered the question properly, correctly. You're not getting it. No one mentioned gratitude. No one mentioned my dad in his holiness, you know, his ability to give me a car and, and trust me or something, also being merciful enough to say, this 16-year-old's going to borrow my car, and being very generous. My dad's being very over-the-top generous. Nobody mentioned that stuff. And that maybe I was responding to my dad's kindness. And I told them, in that moment, that all those reasons are good. They're all like valid, true. But I said, I think what it was, I saw my dad's face. I remember what he said. Just enjoy the car, don't race it. And I wanted, I was grateful. I, did, I wanted to please him. I was, I think I was deep down responding to his kindness. I was really saddened that so many of these kids, <clears throat> they, didn't, they didn't seem to be moved in that direction. That maybe the authorities in their life are only authorities who are stern and judgmental and controlling, which I suspect a lot of their parents are. Motivated, the motivation to keep in line out of fear versus out of love. Maybe they had learned some holiness along the way and some do the right thing, do the thing, but they have never really dwelled in the land of generous mercy and kindness, maybe. Or they just hadn't appreciated it yet. Uncle Reggie said to these kids, be happy, and perhaps you'll be good. That doesn't mean if you're happy, you'll necessarily be good. But perhaps you'll be good. And, and the kid says, I could be good if I was happy. And I want to ask you this morning, what portal do you tend to enter through each day? You go through the, the portal of worry of whether you're going to be good, going to do the right thing, going to do good, and the shame that goes along with that? Or do you walk through the portal of, he has made me glad? I think you know. I think you know which one will have a more lasting effect at getting your attention, at growing you into goodness and holiness. So walk through that portal first. You know, the, the church, the church gather on a Sunday morning or wherever we gather throughout the week, it should look like a glad place. It should, you know, should look like, it should look like where I work part-time during Christmas. Fry's Greenhouse. Fry's Greenhouse in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I have the privilege of working in a family business during the holiday season. Cutting Christmas trees, throwing them on roofs, tying them up, talking to customers, tending fires, 
the best job I've ever had. I love it. And I also keep some teenage guys in, in check, sometimes. It's the happiest place to work. And 99% of the people that come in to Fry's Greenhouse to pick out a tree are so happy. They're happy and they know it. They're so easy to please. And seriously, like a retail environment where everybody's like, oh yeah, we'll do this, and the kids are, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll take it. They give tips, you know, they're drinking a hot cocoa, and they got hats on, and the kids are, I mean, some people get unhappy, and there's, you know, one customer that comes back and complains. They all go home, warm with hot chocolate, and filled with expectation. It's not that the living God only wants you to be good, as if he needs that from you. It's that he wants you to be happy, deep down. That's why he came in the person of Jesus. And if you're willing to believe that, it changes everything. You might just begin to look more like him. Holy, merciful. You might just find his kindness becoming a part of you. And you'll be happier for that too. It may not be so 